Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to take our time in the church of Laodicea because Laodicea fits our time period that we're currently in. And you need to know where we're at, where we have come from, and the church era of Laodicea because it is the last of the church age in what it looks like before the rapture and before the tribulation period. Laodicea is characterized as the lukewarm church. We'll get into that today about their rivers that came into their city. Jesus actually used their topography to give them their warning. The idea of the Laodicean church is the lukewarm church, but it's the church that will have to do battle with apostasy. See, what's currently going on now is you have the Laodicean period happening currently, but concurrent with it is the great apostasy that Paul warned about several times. And so you're going to see how those two intermingle, how they interact. And basically the idea is Laodicea does not do a very good job at battling apostasy. And I'll explain the very reasons for it. This is why we see so much apostasy today. We have people uh, that have moved away from our town. They went to the Bible Belt. They went to other places in California. They went different parts of the country. And do you know what they're telling me? They can't find a church. They go in there, and it's an absolute circus. The pastor is a ringleader of Barnum and Bailey or whatever, like a circus Vargas type of thing. And it is a joke what they're seeing. Social justice warriors, replacement theology, people who are so ecumenical, they don't hold any theological tenets. And they come back and they say, Brandon, I can't find anything out there. And I said, I know, welcome to apostasy. Welcome to the era that we live in. We can't hardly find anything because the church of Laodicea dominates the landscape, not only in America, but around the world. As we study Laodicea, you have to understand there's ways of interpreting this properly. The first thing is you have to understand what was happening at the local situation, and then you must understand it from a historical prophetic standpoint, that the churches are laid out in a prophetic standpoint in chronological order to explain how church history will go, how the church ends. Now, the church will have a remnant, the Philadelphia church. I forgot to mention last time when we studied the Philadelphia church that the Matthew 13 parable, there's the parables that match the seven churches. The parable that matches Philadelphia is a pearl of great price. That the church, the remnant church, was started by an irritation and grew into a a fine pearl that's worth a lot of wealth, spiritually speaking. And it grew out of that irritation inside of a clam or oyster, whatever you want to call that. And, And that's the church of Philadelphia. It's very precious to the Lord. But then you come to the church of Laodicea. And when you're dealing with Laodicea, you're dealing with the dragnet, the dragnet of Matthew 13. It's the last days where Christ is throwing out the dragnet and pulling in the last remaining vestiges of anyone who will come to him. And so when you see that dragnet in concert with Laodicea, you know that you're in the last days. 
And that's how the church ends. It ends in apostasy. It ends by the majority of people not even being saved. And that small remnant of Philadelphia being drawn out and raptured out of the situation. Well, you have to understand that, and we'll, we'll explain that. So, along with these messages, I ask that you bear with me, but you, I have to do a lot of history because we're looking at church history. So, it's important to understand church history and how things developed and where did they come from? Where did these practices come from? Because it'll tell you how we got here. Again, a little bit of background on the city of Laodicea that was right there in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. It was a banking center, very, very wealthy place, most prosperous of the seven churches. The church was also prosperous. So not only was the city prosperous, the people who went to this church were extremely wealthy. It was a very well-to-do congregation. And again, large banking industry, but a lot of other industries as well. One of the industries they had is they sold black wool. And I think we have a picture of that. And the black wool that in those days made them a lot of money. People came from all over to get the black wool of Laodicea. And so that made them a lot of money. The other thing that made them money, and I think we have a kind of a picture of it, it was Phrygian Isav or Phrygian Isav. And what they would do is they had this, this powder and what they would do is crush it up, mix it with water, and people came from all over the Mediterranean to get this ISAV to put on their eyes, and it performed some types of benefits for them. The city also had a spa, believe it or not. It was a resort area. Because it had very close to its proximity, Heropolis, which was uh, kind of like we have in California, hot springs, it had a hot spring. It had mineral water, and people would come there to bathe. They actually piped it in and brought it in by an aqueduct into the city. So it was a resort area, banking area, textile area. A lot of money was there, and a lot of medical practices were there. So I tell you that because this becomes their problem, okay? And we'll build on this in the next sermon on this, because I'm actually going to take... Uh, this is the second sermon. We're going to do three sermons on Laodicea because it's extremely important to understand. Okay, that being the case, we go into what's called the historical prophetic narrative or the plan and purpose of history during this era. On your outline, you should have, you know, it started from maybe 1800s or 1900s. People debate that into the present day. That's the era we're dealing with. When you look at what happened to England, which was the center of Christianity that sent all kinds of missions out into the world, they lost that ability to send people, and they lost their spirituality. And I can tell you, it almost came down to one thing. It came down to their treatment of Israel. When England decided not to go forward with the Balfour Declaration from World War I that they had made and not follow through with it, it appears from history that England started spiritually declining, whereas before they were the muscle behind the missions movement. And then what ended up happening is America, through Truman, helped to get Israel back as a nation. And so even before that and then after that, America rose in prominence in sending missions and evangelism and being the major funder of evangelism around the world. So we kind of, the mantle passed from England to us. England today is deader in the door now. If you go there today, you will see nothing but mosques, 
nothing but coffee houses that have taken over churches. It is dead on the door now. Yes, there's a little small remnant there, small remnant in Scotland and in different places like that, but it's minuscule. It's absolutely minuscule. It's, it's what's called a burnt-out area. And right now, we're seeing that start in America. We're seeing the younger generation not gravitate to Christianity they have adopted the Laodicean attitude. They could take it or leave it. They don't care. They like spirituality, but they don't like any spirituality that demands that they be obedient and demand what the Bible says. They like Hinduism and New Age and different things like that. That appeals to them. They want to do their spirituality on their own, not connected to authority, not connected to a church. They're just doing things on their own. Let's go back and understand what happened in America. When did this start? When did this Laodicean church start beginning? And let me walk through the decades with you, and I'll have it on the board with you, and I'll explain each one. Really, liberalism or leftism that started in religion in America started in the late 1800s, but really it started about 1910, right before World War I. And what happened in 1910 is you had the start of the fundamentalist movement. What was happening before then, liberalism was invading the seminaries, and they were sending out pastors out through these churches, and the pastors would, would mess up the churches and get everybody in apostasy and false doctrine and liberalism and, and whatnot. So what developed in 1910 by the remnant, when I, the remnant did this, the remnant, remnant set up five fundamentals. This is where the term fundamentalism came from. The fundamentals that they came up with were the inspiration of Scripture, the virgin birth, substitutionary atonement, resurrection of Christ, miracles of Jesus. In 1910, the remnant said, if you don't believe in those five fundamentals, you can't claim to be a Christian. At that point, schisms started happening. The churches started breaking up because of false doctrine and because the remnant was breaking it away as well. So the liberal movement starts going on. And then fundamentalism starts getting a bad name. They call them fundamentalists. That's what they're calling us today. But really, fundamentalism is centered around correct doctrine. By the 1930s, this goes through all through the 20s, but in the 1930s, you have what's called the separatist movement that developed in America as fundamentalists started forming independent churches away from the denominations. People ask, why are there so many denominations? I can tell you, it's because of religious liberalism, leftism. That apostasy that has entered. And so the separatist movement, the Bible believer Christians in America started pulling away from major denominations like the Presbyterians, like the Methodists and whatnot, and Baptists and all this other stuff. So the separatist movement happened at that time. And so you had splinter groups breaking off here and there because of false doctrine. And that's what Paul warned would happen, that as false doctrine entered the church, it would cause schisms. As to what the Scripture said, that's exactly what happened here in America. Schism started happening. 1940s, then starts another movement called the ecumenical movement. You might be aware of this, like the World Council of Churches and, and things like that nature. What the ecumenical movement wants is they want to get rid of all theology and just be united as one on common cause issues. So eradicating social justice issues and social problems and things of that nature. And so it's unity at the expense of theology. The ecumenical movement, my friends, if you're not aware of it, is the whore of Babylon. 
She wants to unite all the religions together saying, hey, we all worship the same God. Let's come under one banner and let's try to tackle the world's common cause issues. So when you see the ecumenical movement today, it is the whore of Babylon. It is the false church. And she's causing a lot of people in the Laodicean church to come under her banner. Here's what's happening. It's called theological reductionism. I know that's a big word, but what's happening is this. You'll hear a pastor, you'll hear a person that attends a church saying, you know what, it's just all about Jesus, and and we don't need to divide over all these tertiary or secondary issues. And then you start asking, okay, I, I understand what you're saying, but what do you mean? What's secondary to you? What's tertiary to you? And then they start naming what they are, the virgin birth, eschatology, Israel, prophecy, they start naming primary doctrines. And what they have done is called reductionism. They have reduced Christianity to just some simple facts of like the gospel and just left everything by the wayside. Okay, what about prophecy? It's a third of the Bible almost. Well, we don't need to divide over that. Okay, I agree with that, but that you're not going to teach that? You're not going to tell your people that? Uh, or theological tenets of bringing in false doctrines and how that works with Christianity? That's okay with you? Well, we don't want to divide over those methodologies. Oh, yeah, but those methodologies are demonic. They're from witchcraft. You're okay with that? Well, we just love Jesus. You see what the problem is? It's called theological reductionism. When someone tells you that, and then ignores other doctrines at the expense of unity, you are dealing with ecumenicism. That's what's happening in most churches, even here in Kern County. They have reduced theology to, I love Jesus. That's not all the Bible. The 66 books talk about all kinds of subjects. And you have to deal with them. You can't just let it go by the wayside, but that's what's going on with the ecumenical movement. And then, then they, obviously, they change the nature of Jesus. So anyway, that's another story, but I just want to briefly touch on that. 1960s, as you know, the Cultural Revolution hit America and pretty much the rest of the world. They started changing the language of traditional terms, deconstructed biblical sexuality, and ushered in feminism. People that say they're a feminist today are so proud of it, but they're attacking the very way God created us, male and female, and the different roles for male and female. So now if you tell them the biblical role, you're a misogynist. But think about how they deconstructed biblical sexuality. Think about what the 60s led to. Free sex. Have sex with anyone in any time you want. No restrictions. Before marriage, during marriage, have sex with anyone you want. There was no restrictions. And then look where that's led us. It's led us to gay marriage, transgenderism, people having sex changes and things of that nature. Pandora's box has been opened, and you can trace it all the way back to the 60s. Sexual revolution unleashed all of that. Notice what I said, though, in the 60s. They changed the language. Changing the language is extremely important for understanding reality. And I'm going to get to this in just a bit. But the 60s did more than just the sexual revolution. It started changing language. The Marxists, the communists know this already. It's a satanic tactic. is to take what God says about a certain sin or what's good 
and call good evil and call evil good by just changing the language. When you can do that, you change the paradigm. You change the reality. And that's what the 60s did. No longer was it called sexual immorality. It was just called sexual freedom. No longer was it called sodomy. It's called an alternative lifestyle. No longer was it called adultery. It was called having an affair. You see how subtle it is that the change in the language makes it more acceptable, and that eventually changes the reality in the person's mind. They knew what they were doing in the 60s, and they changed the language. So abortion is now what? A woman's right. Oh, you see how they changed the reality? It's very subtle. It's very satanic, by the way. 1970s was ushered in, attack on authority of the Bible. Higher criticism came in from Germany that had in the 1800s came into America and into the seminaries, and they started saying the Bible wasn't inspired, and there was big fights over that. Then the 1980s came in, and that ushered in consumerism and commercialism into the church. That's what created the mega church. All of history had never seen something like what developed in America. Yeah, there was a few things like Spurgeon in, in uh, England. We had about 10,000 people, but that was a rarity. Now, it's commonplace to have a church over 10,000, over 20,000, over 30,000. That is unheard of from biblical history. No way did God ever intend the church to get that large with one pastor trying to manage 10,000 people. That's impossible. The average pastor can only manage about 150. If he goes past 150, he has to have help. He has to have staff. That's ridiculous. All these pastors are becoming are, are just a public speaker. They're never in the trenches with the people, dealing with their problems, counseling them, walking them through tragedy, walking them through hurt. This is American phenomenon. But it came from the 80s because of consumerism. The people in the pews started making demands on the churches. We want this, we want that, we want this program, and it became programs galore. The term cafeteria Christianity came out of that because the churches were condescending to give people what they want. It's led into today. 1990s came. With that, it ushered in the emergent church movement and postmodernism. The emergent church movement has no theological boundaries. As long as you're progressing to Jesus, they say, we don't care what your theological tenets are as long as you're progressing to Jesus. What Jesus? Look, Christianity has theological boundaries that you must cross over, that you must believe in. If you don't believe in the Trinity, you cannot be a Christian. If you don't believe in the deity of Christ, you are not a Christian. You have to hold to certain tenets. And if you don't, you're not a Christian. But yet all these people claim to be Christians who don't hold to the main and plain things of Scripture anymore. That's what the emergent church is doing. And there's no morality anymore in the emergent church. Postmodernism, as you know, there is no absolute truth anymore, even though what they say is an absolute truth, that there is no absolute truth. That is an absolute truth if they state that statement. But nonetheless, they want to continue to give this idea that you can't definitively say what's true and what's not. We're just kind of floating out here. 1990s did that. The 2000s came, and that presented and ushered in what's called the purpose-driven, seeker-friendly movement a la Rick Warren, Bill Hybels, and the social justice, social gospel movement, 
and Kingdom Now theology. You obviously know the purpose-driven, seeker-friendly movement, what the intent is, don't you? It came from Peter Drucker. The template that they used for the purpose-driven model and the seeker-friendly model comes straight out of communism. Nobody knows that. No one wants to talk about that. Peter Drucker got that from how they did the power of a short campaign in communism. And the idea is you, you draw a crowd by a quick campaign, and you use that crowd and build off these concentric circles, which is exactly the purpose-driven model. It's not a biblical model. And it created this seeker-friendly movement that's created these large churches as well, along with the consumerism. Is it okay to use communistic methodologies to create a church? I don't think so. But yet all these people buy into what Rick Warren and Bill Heibel says. You need to question people who read or study Rick Warren or study and promote Bill Hybels. These guys are false teachers. They're using methodology straight from communism, not the Bible. How is that possible? Well, it works. It's pragmatism. Yeah, it does work. It does absolutely work. It does produce numbers. It does. It's an absolute formula. It does work. The communists used to say the power of a short campaign. What did Rick Warren came out with? 40 days of this, 40 days of that, 40 days of this, 40 days of that. Ah, where did he get that mindset from? Power of a short campaign. That's where he got it. Sermon series lasting for one month. Then the next month you move to a different sermon series. Ten ways to have a better smile. Ten ways to be stress-free. Ten ways to whatever. Have your best Friday. Whatever. They stopped studying books of the Bible. That's what that brought in. And then obviously the social justice warriors jumped in on that. And that's come from the left. That's always been on the left's issue of social justice. Now social justice is in the church. Now people think the goal of the church is to cure illiteracy. Now people think the goal of the church is to cure AIDS. Now people think the goal of the church is to stop sex trafficking. Is that the goal of the church? Is to transform the society? No, it is not. The goal of the church is to get people saved and discipled. It's that simple. Now, if enough people get saved and discipled, it will inevitably transform the society if a certain amount of people do that. But it's not a guarantee. Because ask the Christians in Iran today if them being saved is transforming Iran. It's not. You see, you see what I'm saying? But this, this mindset that we're going to transform the society, kingdom now, we're in the kingdom now, we're going to Christianize everything, and then when we Christianize everything, Jesus will come back. That's ridiculous. That's a false doctrine. But yet people are buying in. It sounds so good because we want to be social justice warriors. We want to dig water wells and get water to people. That's great. But do you give them the gospel? Well, we're really not there for that, Brandon. Well, then what are you there for? All they're going to do is then go to hell without any thirst. Is that what you're doing? That's ridiculous. That's the social justice warriors. I would say dig the water well, and then afterwards you present the gospel and use it as a springboard to give them the truth. But they're not doing that. The social justice warriors are not worried about that. It's a feel-good thing for them. Oh, I handed out 50 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to homeless. Okay. Did you lead anyone to the Lord? Well, no. Did you try to present the gospel? Well, no. Did you hand them at least a track? Well, no. Then what were you doing? You were practicing philanthropy. You were practicing social justice. 
Look, the only thing that's going to save someone on the street is Jesus, not a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. See, that's how the church is turned into now. Social justice warriors. They're putting the cart before the horse. That's here with us, folks. That's how we got to Laodicea in a brief synopsis. Now, let me tell you what it's caused. It's caused several problems. It's caused denial. Into this present day, we have denials. Denials of doctrine that leads to schisms. This is why there's so many churches, because they're breaking off. The remnant is breaking off, breaking off, breaking off. And we can tell our experience of that. We broke off from the Southern Baptists because we didn't like what they were doing. And the nonsense at the upper echelon of the denomination, we had enough of. And so we broke off. That's exactly what Paul said would happen. The remnant would just keep breaking off, breaking off, breaking off until it could finally get to some safe harbor or safe space, so to speak, away from false doctrine. That's what we're seeing. Like I told you last week, it's getting ready to happen in the Calvary Chapel movement. They're having major problems after Chuck died. It's happening in the Southern Baptist. You're going to see schism after schism after schism happening because the leadership is bad. And so you're, the good pastors are going to break away, and that's what we're seeing. The second thing is right now we're seeing is the Bible is not the final authority to discern truth. In Laodicea, because of all this run-up of history, the Bible is not the final authority. Well, what is? People's experience. They get these liver quivers in the night or whatever it is or whatever you want to call it. They eat the pepperoni pizza, and they have a dream of Jesus, and Jesus is talking to them. And Jesus tells them to divorce their mate and do this, do that, all kinds of unbiblical things. And yet the Bible never said that. But they're having direct revelation from God. And that's what people are selling people now. You can talk to Jesus personally and he'll talk back to you. You sit there in your room, blank out your minds and Jesus will talk to you. See, now we're going past the Bible. That the Bible is not sufficient. And that's the issue. They turn to experiences. They go out in the forest And in the woods, and they're going to go talk to Jesus in the woods. Just him and them. Guess what? Some of the major cults started by someone going into the woods by themselves and saying, Speak to me. You want to name the big one? The Mormons. That's what happened to Joseph Smith in the middle of a forest. Two apparitions appeared to him. He called them the father and the son. And they created with him the cult of Mormonism. Same thing happened to the Jesus-calling gal. She's in the middle of a forest trying to commune with God. What happens? An apparition appears to her. She called it the presence, and the apparition says, right. And guess what she wrote? Jesus-calling and all that nonsense. You don't go and have an experience and think you're going to walk away with it not spiritually harmed because the satanic world is out there, and they're waiting and hoping people do that. Because they'll hear a voice. Oh, they'll hear a voice, but it's not going to be Jesus' voice. Because you know what Jesus is saying? I've already spoken to you. You don't need to go into a forest. I've already told you what I think about things. I am defining reality, not you in a forest. But major cults start that way. But So people are having these experiences. I talked to a guy who went to a retreat. Yeah, we went out into the forest, and it was so great because Jesus spoke to me. Really? Really? Well, you were wrong. It wasn't Jesus. He doesn't speak that way. And then they'll turn to Hindu New Age practices to get these experiences. 
Transcendental meditation apparently has hit into the church, and no one's seeing it. Transcendental meditation is contemplative prayer. That's all that is. And these New Age practices of prayer circles and prayer labyrinths and stuff like that, that's what the New Agers practice, but they got that from Hinduism. By the way, historically, guess when Eastern mysticism hit American churches? Early 1900s. And they've been worming their way all through it to where now churches are practicing New Age and Eastern mysticism and don't even realize it. Well, what do you mean? Well, I mean, think about what you're seeing. You're seeing yoga, mindfulness, Reiki practices in mainline churches. They'll say there's a new move of the Spirit. Now we see enagrams, mandalas, all kinds of stuff. Look what's happening in Bethel in Redding, California. The, the newest whack apostasy is going on there. They say gold dust is falling. People are being healed People are getting visions and things of that nature. It's nonsense. It's New Age Hinduism. It's demonic. And then they start desiring direct revelations from God. That's what people are doing. It's not enough for them to read their Bibles anymore and have their quiet time. i got to have Jesus speak to me. i got to go beyond the revelation he's given there. i got to have direct revelation. That's what all the millennials want. They don't want to read the Bible anymore. It's too hard. Not too hard to understand. It's just too much work to read. So they would rather have an experience. So they'd rather go to a conference that teaches them how to be a prophet. You got this going on in our own hometown. There's churches today that have schools of prophecy, and they're going to teach people how to be a prophet. That's right here in Kern County, but it's all over America. Teach people to be a prophet? You got to be kidding me. Laodicea, folks. I've given you, and I think you got it on the way in, this booklet. We put this together, and again, it's not exhaustive, but I would keep this in your Bible, and anytime you hear some joy boy on TV, or you hear some podcast or something, you pull this out and see if they're on this list. Pull, them out, pull this and use this as a resource, and that way you know it has movements in there, it has cults in there, and it has the names of individuals. And anyone says, well, that you shouldn't be naming names. Why? Paul did. Paul named names like there was no tomorrow. He said, hey... Warn you about this guy, warn you about that guy. It's okay to name names because you must understand the wolves in sheep's clothing. Take this home, take a look at it. If you got people are, that are giving you books by these people, trash them. And if you have them in your library, trash them. There's problems in there. So that's kind of a resource that I wanted to give you. Okay, but here's the deal let's get to point number two and understand what Jesus is going to say about this. That's the history a little bit. So now you understand why he's going to say what he's saying. I needed to do that so you understand his point. And this is point number two on your outline. It says, Jesus is described as the final authority over a believer, the true evaluator of a believer's life, and the creator who must not be substituted for by believers worshiping the fallen creation. I know it's a long outline, but that's what's embedded in here and what he calls himself. Now, he's, he's going to call himself, but what I want you to see is Jesus is naming what he is because that's what they need, if that makes sense. He will always describe himself in what they need, okay? So, he first says, let's, let's read in verse 14, these things say the amen, 
the faithful and true witness, the beginning or arche in the Greek of the creation of God. Let's take each of those terms and unpack what he's trying to say. These things say the amen. He calls himself the amen. You know what? We we use the word amen at the end of our prayers. It means basically what he's saying is I have the final word. I have the last word on your life. I am the final authority over over you as a believer. Okay? It's going to resonate with what we're going to talk about in just a bit. Then he says, I'm the faithful and true witness. The idea is, I'm not only going to tell you the truth, I'm going to tell you all the truth about you. And that truth is going to hurt you. Because reality stems from me. And you're not in reality, he's telling Laodicea. So what I'm about to tell you is going to be a confrontation. I have nothing to commend you for. I just simply have confrontation for what you're doing, Laodicea. And take it from me, the buck stops here. What I'm about to tell you is your true condition of who you are. You're in another reality, and I'm going to snap you back into reality by what I tell you. That's why he says, I'm the final word, the amen, and I am faithful and the true witness, because I'm not going to hide anything from you. I'm going to be brutally honest with you, is what the Lord is saying. Brutally honest? Yeah, that brutal. You wait till he sees what he says to them. Very harsh words. I read this, this week a funny story talking about brutally honest. This is a while back. Um, a family is suing a uh, Catholic priest in New Mexico, I, I saw. Apparently, um, they had a funeral for this guy, and the priest got up there at the funeral and said, I'm going to tell you the truth. This guy in this casket, he's in hell right now. <laughs> he was a dirty, rotten scoundrel. I don't care what you guys say about him. He's, he's in hell right now, and he's burning right now as we speak. We did that at a funeral. Well, anyway, the family got ticked off, obviously. And the guy's probably right or whatnot, but... They're suing this priest and the archdiocese of this, this area in New Mexico because of his brutal honesty. Well, I guess they're defending him, saying he's got free speech. But talk about being brutally honest. Well, that's what we're saying, man. Jesus is not going to hold anything back. He's not going to temper it, not to, I'm not going to try to offend you. He's just going to tell us like it is. And this other thing about being the arche or the beginning of the creation of God, he's saying, I'm the source of creation. Jesus was the the agent of creation. The Father gave him the plans. Jesus orchestrated that and created all things, right? And I'm going to come back to that. I don't want to explore that right now because what was happening in Laodicea is they started worshiping the creation. And that's why he's saying, I'm the creator, I'm going to unpack that next week because there's a lot there we have to drill through. It comes later in the text. But nonetheless, I think you got the idea. Jesus saying, you better listen up to what I'm going to say. I'm going to snap you into reality. That gets us to point three. Jesus rebukes their indifference and uselessness and warns them that if they continue in this state, that they will be disciplined for it. Verse 15. I know your works. That is a chilling statement because of what he's about to say. 
If I was in this condition, and I pray none of us in this room are in the Laodicean condition, but if I was in this condition and Jesus is talking to me about this, this would be the most chilling words I could possibly hear from my Savior. I know what you're doing. I know what you're up to. You can't hide what you're doing in these locked closets. I see exactly what you believers are doing. Whoa, I wouldn't want that message. And I pray anyone in here is not part of this Laodicean mindset. I truly believe we're part of the Philadelphia mindset. But nonetheless, I don't want to be in that position, that state where he says, hey, I know what you're up to. You're not playing any games with me. That you are neither cold nor hot. Now, I've struggled with these words for years. I think now I've come to a better understanding of what he is saying. And I've read tons of commentaries. I've researched this ad infinitum, and I, I think I can understand what he is saying. The majority of scholars say that these two references of cold and hot are actually positive. Well, let me explain. Let me show you a map a little bit so you can kind of understand what's going on here. Laodicea was here in the Lycus River Valley. And then you had Colossae right there. Paul wrote to the Colossians, right? And then you had Heropolis up above. In Colossae, it was on a mountain range, and you had a snow-capped mountain, and it drained there, and it produced these rivers that flowed into the Lycus River. And extremely cold, but extremely refreshing, clean water. You could drink, and it was fantastic. It brought refreshment to people that anyone drank from the Colossae streams because it was just purified water. It was really good, and it provided that benefit to everyone around it. Up there in Heropolis, you had a hot spring. I think I have some pictures of it so you can see. This is the hot spring up there in Heropolis today. And you can see the deposits, the mineral deposits that come from this area. It's kind of like the hot springs up there in California hot springs. It's very hot. The minerals are very soothing. So a lot of people would go and use this area for body aches and stuff like that. So it was very therapeutic in that sense to be in that hot mineral water. Here's the snow-capped mountains of Colossae. And that snow would drain like it does in our Sierras and form these rivers, and they would use that as their water. And this is Colossi River that would flow to Laodicea. So this is what I want to show you. So what the people Laodicea did is they tried to channel these two areas into their city. And they did a very good job of that. But they would take the cold water and use it for drinking, and then they'd take the hot water and make these, these like mineral baths and stuff like that. But then there was a point naturally that happened where the two rivers came together, the hot water and the mineral springs with the cold water of Colossae, and they collided and formed a second river. And that river is what Jesus is referring to later on because it created a lukewarm water that was bitter to take. You couldn't drink it because if you did, it'd make you sick. So if you understand, and there's some other pictures of the pipes they brought in, and this would be the main city of Laodicea, and that's the main street, and then the, the aqueduct that they brought in the water was on the right side over there. So Laodicea was extremely wealthy, but they had a problem with their water. The two waters mixed, you couldn't drink it. So they had to figure out you know, other ways of bringing that fresh water from Colossae in, and they did, but they had a water problem. Anyway, 
The point we're trying to make here is this. Jesus is saying, I wish you were cold or hot. The cold being refreshing to people, whereas the hot is soothing to people, comforting to people. So I think the best understanding of what he is saying, I wish, I wish you were doing something. Cold or hot, you at least were useful to me. And then he says, you're neither of those. You're neither refreshing to anybody, nor are you soothing to anybody. Now, here's the crux of the matter. Look what he says here. I could wish you were cold or hot. Please note this. The way the Greek is formed here, what he is saying is, you're in a fixed state, and it's an unattainable wish. You catch that. That's a clue prophetically to the Laodicean church, that you have reached a state that you're probably not going to come out of. In fact, I know you're not coming out of. That's scary. That is the most dangerous position a believer can be in, is a state of lukewarmness, because by the Greek and the emphaticness of this, what he is saying is, once you reach this state, you don't come back. That's what the Greek is saying in this passage. I find that amazing because once a Christian apostatizes, they do not come back from the apostasy either. Not that they lose salvation. That's not what we're talking about here. But in Hebrews chapter 6, if a Christian apostatizes, goes into false doctrine, there is no repentance given for apostasy. It's a state that you get into and you never get out of. And that's what Jesus is implying prophetically, that once the church historically reaches the state of Laodicea, she doesn't come back from. She stays in this state. And yes, there's a Philadelphia element that I will remove, but for the majority of Christendom, once they get there, they don't come back. Think about that. Why? Let me give you the scenario of what's going on in our culture. Do you really think the Ten Commandments are going to be put back in school? Do you think prayer is going to be reinstituted in school? Reading the Bible. No, no, no. You and I both know intuitively those days are gone. You're not coming back to that, right, in America. It's becoming secular. The church is the same way. There's things that maybe you from a, a previous generation, saw, and you say, I couldn't guess this in a million years. We're not going to undo gay marriage. We're not going to undo transgender. We're, no one's going to have a new revelation saying, hey, we just got this all wrong. We need to change this. What is now happening to the church is the church is adapting to the culture. And now the churches are accepting it, saying, well, as long as it's monogamous, as long as they're love, then I guess we can accept a lesbian couple joining our church. They are accommodating the culture now. And when you do that, you don't come back. You don't come back from that. You stay in this state is what Jesus is saying. That is the scariest, deadliest thing. You could have anger, bitterness, hatred. That is nowhere close to being lukewarm. Because at least you can come back from hatred. At least you can come back from unforgiveness or anger and repent. There is no repentance for this. 
It's very, very dangerous. Now, here's the deal. Let's unpack this a little bit with the time remaining. What is going on? How would a believer get into this kind of state? Is it possible for a believer? Absolutely. He's talking to believers. That's who he's talking to here that have reached the state. Okay, let me explain this. The believer has reached an altered state of reality when they're in this state. Let me say it again. They have reached an altered state of reality. We call it in our common vernacular, man, they're just like checked out. What's happened to them? It's like they're not even using their brains anymore. They have no discernment. They have no understanding. They're just clueless. I call them the Christian zombies. Do you know the Christian zombies? I know them well. They're walking around everywhere. They're alive, but they're, they're asleep. They're like, they don't know what they're doing anymore. They read crazy stuff, listen to crazy people, false teachers. False teachers are taking full advantage of them, by the way. And they're zombies. They're zombied out. How do you become checked out as a Christian when you know Jesus? Simple. Simple, but yet it's very wicked. It's this. Let me take you back to the Garden of Eden to explain this. When God spoke into creation, when you study Genesis, he spoke things into existence, did he not? Let there be light. And he spoke it. And then when he creates Adam, he spoke them into existence. Notice what I'm talking about, language, language. He spoke things into existence. He spoke things into reality, did he not? And then he gives Adam duties. And the first thing you'll see is Adam naming the animals. Most people just pass that over and say, well, isn't that nice? He's naming animals. And people don't understand the theological significance of that. That's a Hebraism. The ability to name things in the Hebrew culture means that that person has authority. And that person has authority to define reality. What Adam was doing as an under-sovereign was exercising that sovereignty in naming the animals and creating or using what he saw to name and create that reality, so to speak. Now, I'm talking not, not, the, not the way God does, but just simply he was looking at the animal, seeing its parts, and naming it. He was showing authority over the animals, and he was, he was correct in doing so, and God was pleased that he was naming the animals, right? He wasn't breaking any moral laws or anything like that. So God was pleased in Adam naming that and establishing the reality of that animal, okay? God's the one who created the animal, and he gave that permission to Adam to do that. Everybody's good on that. He speaks to Adam. Adam is naming, speaking to animals, naming them. And then here comes the test. You shall not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you do it, you shall surely die. We know that they had a test and that Satan came to tempt them. And you know about all the temptation. The reality of the test is this. If I choose to take from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I'm taking on myself the prerogative of God. Of being able to tell myself and other people what the reality and nature is of good and evil instead of letting God tell me what the reality of good and evil is or are. 
So Satan tempts them, saying, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Basically saying, you will be able to define your reality for yourself if you take it. He knows if you take it, you're going to be like him. He doesn't want you describing your own reality. You can be like God. So the idea in the, in the garden is this. Will Adam and Eve trust God to define their reality for them, or will they take it upon themselves to create their own reality? And you know the rest of the story. They decided, I want the ability to determine what the reality is, and I'm going to do it through language. See, the whole theme is God speaking. God speaking. He's speaking to Adam. Speaking, speaking. The idea is that when God speaks, he creates reality out of his speaking, right? He, Jesus, is the only one that can tell you and I what reality is. We do not have a right to say, no, I don't believe what you're saying. At that point, when a believer says, I don't agree what you're saying with reality, they are calling God a liar. And that's what Satan was saying, and that's what Adam and Eve, in effect, did. They called God a liar and didn't trust him to describe the reality for them. They didn't want to be dependent on him telling them what reality was. So they took it upon themselves to do it. Now, let's bring it back to Laodicea. The Laodicean believer does the exact same thing. They start small, but they end up in a pit, and they start bucking the system. God says, this is wrong, and this is right. What they start doing says, no, it's not. There's exceptions to that rule. I can do this, or she can do that, or I can do that. I will define what reality is, not him. The minute, folks, any believer goes off the trail of saying, I'm going to define reality, you're going to start going crazy. And I'm not talking about a mental defect or anything. You, you will start checking out. You will create a fantasy world, a unreality that's not in reality. It's your reality. You think it's real, but it's not what God has said. You will call black white and white black. You will call what God calls up. You will call it down. You will start doing the opposite by creating your own reality by language. Language will do it to you. Remember I told you in the 60s, what did they do? They changed the language. So let me give you an example of what I, what I mean by this and how people get in this state. God says, you believer, you made bad choices. But the believer says, no, I didn't. I did the best I could. These are actually good choices. God says, hold people accountable. Don't let them bulldoze you for their bad actions. Don't let them steamroll you. And you say, no, I'm going to enable them. I'm going to maintain this relationship because it makes me feel so good. They need me. So it can't be wrong what I'm doing. God says, forgive. They say, no, I'm not forgiven until the penalty is exacted on them. God says, you're bitter and irresponsible, but they redefine it as victimhood. God says, you're prideful. That's why no one wants to be around you. And you, just, you keep saying, no, I deserve respect. God says, give up that unhealthy relationship. You know it's not right for you. You say, no, I'm lonely, but I can change the dysfunction. I know I can. God says, deal with your problem. 
You sweep it under the carpet saying everything's good. What problem are you talking about, God? God says, get in that healthy relationship. Bond to those right people. Those people will help you. And you say, no, I am not going to bond to them because if I bond to them, they'll see how ugly I am inside and they'll reject me. You see how subtle it is? It's this constant redefinition of reality that God says. And here's what happens. It starts small, and you take one step and redefine reality, redefine reality, and before you know it, you're in fantasy land. And you are checked out. And no one can talk to you. No one can say anything to you. And this is why Jesus puts this issue in this state You're not coming back. Once you lose your mind, you're not coming back. See, here's the deal. You've got to think about it on a scale. If I had a scale in front of us laid out, on this side is how God defines reality, and on this side is how the world defines reality. And it's crazy over there, right? And depending on where you're at in that scale, the closer you are to God, the closer you are to understanding what he is saying and, and just going by what he says about the reality of you and other people and the world, the more sane you will be. The more rational you will be, the more logical you will be, the more spiritual you'll be if you stay on this side of the scale with God. But the minute you start moving across the scale to whatever degree, that's when you start losing your mind. Literally. You will lose your mind. Because what do we call people not in reality? Crazy. Do we not? We do. I mean, we say it as a pejorative. I mean, oh, he's crazy. No, no, no. You don't understand. The further he's away or she's away from God, they are going to become insane. They'll lose their minds. And that's what we're seeing all through the church. Christians have lost their minds. And we, we're scratching our heads saying, what's wrong with them? What's wrong with them? Scary, isn't it? Let's jump to the last verse. I want you to see this in verse 16. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Oh, my land. Oh, my land. This is why people don't want to preach in the book of Revelation, because it gets, it gets right in people's dishes. I will vomit you out. Yeah, because of the people of Laodicea, when they drink the water, if it, it was the cold water from Colossae and then the Heropolis water meeting, it created this lukewarm thing. And then when they would drink it, it had the min- heavy mineral content. It made them vomit. It, the, the, the stomach would just immediately expel it because it made them vomit. Just like you're drinking soured milk. The, the body just immediately vomits it out. Ugh, it makes me sick. And so Jesus is using their water system to say, this is what I'm going to do to you. Now, I'm not going to unpack what this means to not, uh, today because this takes a while to unpack. What does he mean by he will vomit? I'll say real shortly what it is. It's discipline. What kind of discipline, we'll deal with next week. But what's the point? And I don't want you to miss this. Being cold or hot means I'm useful. I'm useful. Being lukewarm means you're not useful. That's what he's saying to them, that these Christians have reached a state that they're so out of it that they're useless for him to use. He cannot use them in evangelism. He cannot use them to to help the body of Christ. They are shelved. 
They are useless like the Laodicean water that was mixed, and they just did nothing with it. Jesus said it another way in the Gospels, and you remember it very well. What happens to the salt if it loses its saltiness, right? What did he say it's good for? To be thrown on the ground and trampled under feet. He, in essence, he was saying the same thing as he's saying to Laodicea. These believers have reached a state of useless. I cannot use you anymore. That's scary. And there's a lot of Christians, as you know, that are useless. Now, marry this, and we'll end on this. At the same time that the majority of the church is useless, apostasy is over here. Oh, my goodness. A perfect storm has been created. Yeah. A church that is useless cannot fight apostasy. You catching how the two work? Why is apostasy running rampant and there's no checks and balances on it? Because the Laodicean church in America can't fight it. They're too worried about social justice warrior issues, taking down statues of General Lee or whatever. That's what they're too worried about. But they're not getting anyone saved. They're not ministering to the body of Christ because they are checked out. Useless. So many passages in the Olivet Discourse about warning believers, like the parable of the talents. The guy who had five doubled it. The other guy had two doubled it. And what did the guy do with the one talent? He buried it. He was useless. And what did Jesus call him? You wicked and lazy servant. You're useless to me. I didn't save you so you could sit on your blessed assurance and do nothing for me. So be checked out. That's what the church is ineffective. That's why we haven't won the culture war. Everyone is checked out. Next week, we will discover what does it mean by he's going to vomit them out of his mouth. What does that mean as far as a believer being disciplined? We'll explore that. Let me end on this. The great violinist, Nicoli Paganini, he was a phenomenal violinist, well-renowned for that. Before he died, he put it in his will that his violin that he played so efficiently would go to Genoa, and they would, they would take this violin on tour around all of Europe and through Spain and, and in Italy and different places like that and England, and they would, they would show uh, Paganini's violin. Here's the interesting thing about Paganini's violin. The wood that it's made out of, if you play it, it stays to get, together. But Paganini put it into the will that no one is to play the violin. He just wanted to go on tour after he died so everybody could see it but not play it. No one was to play it. The kind of wood it's made out of, if you play it, it keeps it intact. If you don't play it, the violin gets worm-eaten and falls apart. And that's what happened to his violin. After his death, because of what he did, the violin became useless. That's the message of Laodicea. They are useless to him. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. 
Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.